0: thought leadership from PWC. Welcome to PWC's accounting podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Today, I'm excited to bring you another episode in our year-end toolkit series, which as you know, is a series of episodes designed to help you through the year-end close. And even if you're not currently in year-end, Stay tuned. This information is relevant no matter when your year-end occurs, and some of this advice may help you get ahead in your process.
1: He pointed out, Paul Munter, in the statement that most cash flow restatements are these little r restatements, like I talked about earlier. And the reason he observed was that many consider the restatements to not be material because they say it's an error in classification only. So the SEC statement goes into how companies should think about materiality when determining what kind of you know if they have a little r restatement or not the message was that a company should just not go right to concluding that all cash flow restatements are immaterial because they're classification only because they observe the cash flow classification itself it's like the foundation of the statement of cash flows right that's the point of the whole statement so he said you know accurately classifying cash flows into the right category is really paramount to investors understanding the nature of the activities that generated and you know, used cash during the period.
0: Once again, this episode, we're joined by a special guest host who'll bring his own perspectives to this topic. Today, PwC National Office partner Kevin Vaughn is joined by Suzanne Stefani, a director in our national office. Their discussion focuses on the statement of cash flows. This has been our most popular episode of the past three years, so listen in as Suzanne brings the latest reminders. With that, let's tune in to Kevin and Suzanne.
2: All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of our Year in Toolkit series. Uh, and for a number of reasons, I think uh, everybody's been looking forward to this one. This is uh, I, I've been looking forward to this one certainly, uh, uh, both because of the content as well as as well as our our popular guest uh, today. I'm joined by Suzanne <laughs> <Thank you.
1: laughs>
2: Suzanne Stefani, who's a director in our national office. Uh, and we're here to t- today to talk about the statement of cash flows. Uh, and this is always a popular topic uh, in our series. And and uh, maybe before we get into some of the updates, because I think we do have some some new Mm -hmm. new things that have happened recently. Uh, But maybe, Suzanne, uh, first, welcome. And if you you. could just uh, (laughs) maybe walk us through why why do we keep talking about statement of cash flows?
1: So the cash flow statement, it still is a common source of restatement and an area where we do still get a lot of questions on in the national office. So we just thought it was a good idea to kind of go through some refreshers. And just to give you a few um, quick stats on restatements. Audit analytics releases a study every year. Kind of they look at all the restatements. Um, those kind of restatements that really, you know, require refiling the financials and those that are revisions. So you call them little R restatements where they're correcting in the current period comparatives. So when you're looking at the past 20 years, or they looked at the past 20 years, cash flow was in the top five issues for a restatement. It was number four. And then they looked back at 22 because that's the most recent year they have data on. They don't have 23 yet. Um, cash flow was number six in top areas for restatement. So just still an area that could use some improvement. Um, so we just thought it was a good idea to kind of go over some of the key topics today.
2: Yeah, and and I think as we'll get into it, and I think you've said this before in, in prior podcasts, there's not necessarily a specific Magic bullet area of of the cash flows that that causes those restatements yeah. or revisions. Yeah. It's it's it can be spread spread about, uh, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll certainly come up with uh, talk through some of the um, specific topics. But mm-hmm. one of the things is you know, and and we'll get into some of the other discussions on this. But sometimes, and it, it just is often uh, overlooked or or pushed to yeah. the end of the cycle. Uh, yeah. It's not as as considered as as critical in terms of the process that companies may follow, and right. so. You know, I certainly you've recommended before that that not be the case that companies, yes. <laughs> uh, you know, consider it real time and and we'll we'll get into some of that. And, and I think uh, maybe echoing that and for some of the same reasons that you just highlighted, mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that we'll talk about is is the SEC chief accountant Paul Munter uh, in December issued a statement on the statement of cash flows uh, with some reminders on it. Uh, so we have that activity. And I know Mm -hmm. that's come up in some other podcasts as well, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper into that. Uh, And then there's also standard setting activity. Uh, So, so there's a lot going on this year. Maybe I'll start uh, just giving some of the, some of the highlights, we'll walk through some of the highlights of the statement. And and the first one was really that, that point that, uh, that that we just talked about that Paul Munter made as well, which is that sometimes the statement of cash flows may not get the same rigor as other statements uh, and companies may not pay as much attention to it uh, as they are on the other, you know, parts of the financial statements. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and so he, he reminded uh, people, it's essential to have an appropriate risk management uh, risk assessment process and controls in place in this area. He also talked about this concept of indirect controls, direct controls, uh, you know, the amounts reported in the cash flow statements uh, are driven off of income statement and balance sheet items, so it's mm-hmm. kind of like an indirect type of impact. Uh, uh, so, uh, but needing to consider obviously the balance sheet treatment, the income statement treatment, but then also flowing that through uh, the and specifically the preparation and thinking about how those transactions uh, flow through on the on the statement of cash flows. Uh, and and so I think to that point it's really about addressing that cash flow consideration early on in the process. Uh, And at the same time that you're addressing balance sheet classification, income statement classification, recognition measurement there, uh, you should be thinking about it from the cash flow statement as well.
1: When that statement came out from Paul Munter, I was pretty excited to see um, a statement come out about the cash flow transactions. Um, It's something we've been talking about for quite a while. And To see it out there from the SEC was good. Um, And I want to kind of just reiterate that point of kind of really thinking about classification, not leaving it to the end of the reporting process, especially with non-recurring transactions. Really important to kind of look at it up front. Now, so he talked about that in the statement. Another thing he talked about was restatements. So back to that, right? He pointed out, Paul Munter, in the statement that most cash flow restatements are these little r restatements, like I talked about earlier, And the reason he observed was that many consider the restatements to not be material because they say it's an error in classification only. So the SEC statement goes into how companies should think about materiality when determining what kind of, you know, if they have a little R restatement or not. The message was that a company should just not go right to concluding that all cash flow restatements are immaterial because they're classification only, because they observed The cash flow classification itself, it's like the foundation of the statement of cash flows, right? That's the point of the whole statement. So he said, you know, accurately classifying cash flows into the right category is really paramount to investors understanding the nature of the activities uh, that generated and, you know, used cash during the period. So he suggested when assessing materiality, companies should perform an objective analysis from the perspective of a reasonable investor, um, that analysis should include the significance of the cash flow statement to the investor's complete understanding of the financial condition of the company overall, and should really think about all the relevant facts and circumstances to evaluate the total mix of information that the investor gets to determine materiality. So really try to think about it from an investor perspective, and would they find that cash flow change material or not? So I thought that was a helpful discussion.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and this concept of, of kind of uh, he's talked about it, I think in other forums as well. Mm-hmm. like one one materiality um, you know for the, for the entirety of the financial statements. and, and obviously materiality is is a, a topic that that he's spoken on before and so mm-hmm. clearly front in mind mm-hmm. uh, it, of that making that distinction and, and really assessing materiality from the perspective of a reasonable investor. And so uh, obviously I think it, I think it makes a lot of sense to bring that you know highlight that in the context mm-hmm. of the cash flow statement as well. The other area that that he talked about in the statement uh, is the just the concept of the other disclosures that surround the statement of cash flows. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be both kind of disclosures about the accounting policies that companies follow, uh, and uh, also non cash uh, disclosures, non cash financing uh, and investing activities. So we'll we'll talk a, a, I know a little bit more about that in mm-hmm. a few minutes, um, and. Really the, the focus, I think, on disclosures is to that same point. You know, this is for the investor to understand what those cash flows are. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of times the, the statement may, may provide a lot of context for a lot of those items, but, but sometimes it may not. And it may, you may need additional disclosure, additional disaggregation. Um, he actually talked about, uh, reminded everybody that, that, um, you know, the, the FASB guidance, uh, actually mm-hmm refers to the direct method, uh, and, and, uh, encourages people to use that, that that's, uh, actually preferred, uh, by some, uh, and so, uh, he, he, uh, certainly, I don't think would be opposed if, if more companies wanted to do that and, and highlighted that, um, but, but, you know, we'll pause for, kind of the overall reaction of everybody to say here direct method. <laughs> I don't method. think I've
1: ever seen anyone use it. But who knows? we
2: did. We did do do a look I think in the oh, S- yeah. S&P 500 there are two companies oh, uh today okay. that do. Okay. But it, but it, and I think he you know he's he's well aware of that as well and and so what he he also talked about is even if you don't do the direct method mm-hmm. uh, you can think about supplementing your existing Uh, your existing operating cash flow disclosures uh, to maybe provide some of that information that might be there. Uh, And really the point is, I think a lot of times direct method, you know, it can be hard to gather that information, but we've had a lot of technological advances like data accessibility might be different Mm now. Uh, So, so maybe thinking about that. And then I think also in the disclosure point uh, I also just wanted to mention, because, because we've seen this, um, from a comment letter perspective from the SEC, mm-hmm. we have seen comments where they're asking for more information, not only in the footnotes to the financials, but also like when you take it to MD&A, liquidity and capital resources disclosures, uh, that's another area where they just might look for more insight into those statement of cash flows items. And then I think maybe another point that he mentioned is uh, the FASB, the standard setting activity. Yeah. Can you maybe walk us through what's what's going on there?
1: Yeah. So the FASB did recently take up a project on cash flows. Now they met back in November to start discussing this. Now the initial decisions that they've made so far, though, mainly just apply to financial institutions. So the reason for that is they've heard that the cash flow statement doesn't Some say that the cash flow statement doesn't provide decision-useful information in that specific industry because many of the activities that are core to the operations aren't presented in the operating section of the cash flow statement. So they talked about a few situations like loan originations and collections for a bank. That's like their business, right? But they're investing today. So they talked about possibly moving them to operating since they're core to the bank's business. Another one is deposit activity. Same thing. Today, it's financing, but they're talking about moving it to operating. Also, one other thing, not classification, but they talked about a possible additional disclosure, which would be interest received. So kind of like interest paid that we have that everyone has today. Um, So more to come on that. Staff's doing further research and outreach. On that, so nothing final, but just kind of keep tuned up your financial institution. And just to put it out there, the FASB chair did still retain just a whole project on cash flow statement on the research agenda, so they may explore further potential improvements in the future that could be broader. But you know who knows? So maybe more to come.
2: Yeah, I think that's it's interesting because I feel like over the last. I don't know. Fifteen years, we've we've tried to move away from industry specific guidance in, and yeah, the accounting true. standards, <laughs> and and um, but but at the same time appreciate and and just to just to reiterate, I think some of those some of those changes that they're considering would be specific to to that industry. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, others others would would continue and and presumably yeah. be unaffected. But mm-hmm. but stay tuned. That could always change.
1: Who knows? <laughs> uh,
2: and and I think it's important too because you know we'll go through some of the classification types of questions that we get and and mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times there can be things where you know there's judgment involved in the classification and and I think the 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 FASB has said this um you know in terms of outreach to them. Uh, if there's, if there's other areas, you mentioned that they have got the research project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm sure that they would, they would appreciate feedback if there's particular areas. Um, they've obviously have a lot of different mechanisms. You can do a gender request and we've talked about that. So, so I think that's, mm-hmm. um, that's an important thing to consider, you, you know, at the, at the conference in December, they rolled out this, this notion of a change in the EITF process. So I wonder if, if that might be something that might might eventually come through on the EITF, you know, maybe mm. they would consider some of those classification type of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously precedent for that. So I think that's a good overview of the the regulatory side and standard mm-hmm. setting side. So maybe we can start to dive into some of the okay. some of the issues Um <laughs> And so maybe the existential question uh, mm-hmm. when when you're doing the statement of cash flows uh, is what is cash, uh, and and so because you know you think about cash, cash equivalents, restricted cash, um, so and and it, if you don't get that right, uh, mm-hmm. then everything else will be wrong. So yeah. <laughs> so um, maybe if you could just uh, give us an overview of that and and uh, talk through like what. What goes into that definition uh, yeah. and, and that starting point?
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, it sounds kind of crazy, but yeah, that's the first thing is to find all the cash and cash equivalents and restricted cash so you have the right number for the, for the cash flow statement, right? So the first thing is to do a full inventory of all that. Find where all those things are, because they don't all have to be in one line on the balance sheet that says cash and cash equivalents or restricted cash. That would be easy, right? But they're allowed to be in other lines, right? Some companies put things, mostly cash equivalents, but in other lines. So like in the investment line item, you might find money market funds, treasury bills, commercial paper. Now some of those don't meet the definition of cash equivalent, but if they do, they might be buried in an investment line. Or sometimes we see cash and escrow, which is probably a restricted cash account, in like some other asset line. So it's kind of segregated. So That's another area. And sometimes that one that I've talked about uh, or had been talking about with a client recently was held for sale. Like so if you have if you have a held for sale line item on the balance sheet, if cash is in the disposal group, it's going to be on that line. So you just have to make sure when you're doing the cash flow statement that you really know where everything is and capture it for when you get ready to do actual cash flow statement and it sounds silly but a lot of companies have might have more things going on like more companies are buying cash equivalents today with rising rates for some reason seeing more restricted cash recently so if sometimes i think what happens is it might be like the treasury department who's doing that and getting these cash equivalents and things like that and maybe it's a different person back to the controls thing doing the cash flow statement they might not be aware that something's kind of buried in another line so just important to kinda take that inventory, maybe talk to your treasury people and all that and kind of see what happened during the year so you can get started right on your cash flow statement.
2: So it's not always just the cash line. It could be could be in other places. And yeah. I, I think that's an important reminder. And and you mentioned restricted cash because that's that's another one that, that will often be presented separately. And so mm-hmm. so I think that's a key. Anything from a disclosure standpoint when you're in that situation? So
1: Yeah. So, like, say you have things in all these different lines, but on your cash flow statement, you're going to have that total number, right? You're reconciling to that total number. But if it is in different lines, you just have to disclose a reconciliation that kind of shows, okay, like, each thing, these are all the line items that it's in. So you can kind of reconcile back to the balance sheet.
2: Okay. And then you talked about the investments and companies doing more of that. Maybe yeah. can you just give us a reminder on on when those investments would be considered cash equivalents when, when not?
1: Yeah, uh, I think, you know, rates are still quite high and sometimes companies are finding that they want to go into these kind of very short-term investments um, at this point. So it's important to, when you get those investments, to figure out if they're a cash equivalent or not. So... Cash flow guidance 230 defines cash equivalents as short term, highly liquid investments that are both readily convertible to known amounts of cash and then so near their maturity that they present just an insignificant risk of change in value because of changes in interest rate. So, if an investment meets that criteria, it is a cash equivalent. But there's one thing there is a policy choice here. So, even if you had something like a T bill or something that met the definition of a cash equivalent, You could have a policy choice to not treat it as a cash equivalent, even if it meets the definition. Sometimes you see that, or sometimes you'll see companies maybe with banking operations might choose to present certain cash equivalents within investments. So the key is one, just make sure that policy is disclosed, and importantly, that is applied consistently. Because sometimes, you know, companies will set their policy and then kind of maybe they haven't bought cash equivalents in a while and they kind of forget about it and then buy more. Now, and realize, oh, I had that policy, and I have to follow that because otherwise, now it's yeah. always challenging to change a policy. So yep. just be aware of it.
2: Yeah, no, no, that's 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 an important reminder. More broadly, yes. uh, a, a lot of t- county policy choices that always creates a little bit of a problem because once you make that choice, uh, yes. you know, it's it's there, it's there for good. Uh, maybe just going to another item you mentioned, uh, which is restricted cash, and so I'm going to maybe. Deviate a little bit, um, uh-huh. uh, and because I know you said you're getting some questions there, and some of that, yeah. some of that might just be along the terms of just classification of restricted cash, like yeah. what makes something restricted cash. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you maybe talk about that for me? Yeah,
1: that's what we're getting. So again, I I don't know if it's with the economy or like maybe contracts are requiring more cash to just be put away in escrow for things or something. But it's just it's just a question we're getting more of, and people say like, "Hey, I have this cash and." I have to, you know, I have some sort of restriction on it, right? Should I put it in restricted cash? Should I call it restricted cash? The thing is, restricted cash is not defined in the guidance. So it's like, it's hard to say, right? Um, If you look at our publications, you'll say, we say that at a minimum, restricted cash should include cash that's legally restricted. So in other words, if the company can access that cash without any legal or contractual consequence, it's not legally restricted. So it really, you really have to look at the contract there and how it works. But let's say it's not. It's not legally restricted. So then the classification of restricted cash, it's really up to the company's policy. So they might just have a policy of like, yeah, just anything that's legally restricted is restricted cash. But sometimes people restrict it a little bit more beyond additional things. And that's really just up to their accounting policy. Again, has to be, Applied consistently, so again, it's the same thing. Like I just said, so so maybe you haven't had restricted cash in a while, and now you do. You just got to make sure you go back to that policy, or maybe it's the first time you're doing it, and that's fine too. You'll just have to just think about it. You know, think about whatever policy you pick. You have to stick with it going forward. So just kind of really be thoughtful about that. Um, why it's important? It used to be it used to be super important because restricted cash was not shown on the cash flow statement, but that was changed um, back. In 2016, um, with the FASB guidance. So, but now the reason it's still important is because you have to disclose it, right? There's disclosure requirements around the nature of the restrictions, like expected duration of the restriction, purpose of terms, and then actually the amount of cash subject to restriction, just so the reader knows, like that cash is not there, just free and clear.
2: Right. So, yeah. just important. Nope that that all makes complete sense. Maybe moving on to our next topic, which is I, I feel like fundamental to to the statement of cash flows, and mm-hmm. and uh, I know um, a question that comes up a lot is gross versus net, uh, gross cash flows, net cash flows. Um, you know, maybe a lot of times company would prefer to be able to present more things on a net basis. Yeah, uh, but easier. but I think the guidance is fairly fairly restrictive on that.
1: Yeah, we do get a lot of questions about this. Um, it's just different transactions, and okay, yes, just showing it now. It's just. It's just easier sometimes, right? Um, like you said, the guidance, though, has this bias to show everything as gross because they say they say something like gross is most useful um, to financial statement users or something like that. But there are some, I, I guess I'll say rare circumstances that you show items net. So items, the guidance says this, items that have quick turnover occur in large volumes and have short-term maturities, so less than 90 days. Now- we get co- various questions like one-off transactions, but one we do kind of see a little bit more often is around revolving lines of credit, especially this year. A little bit more t- uptick in questions around revolvers. Again, I don't know if it's the economy and liquidity, and like maybe I don't know companies are just drawing down more or using them. So, just wanted to cover it. So, this is a big one: questions about netting. So, say. You know, you're a company and you're borrowing and repaying on your revolver like all the time. Every couple of days you're doing it, right? And companies say, well, it doesn't really. Do I have to really show every time I borrow as a financing inflow and every time I pay as a financing outflow? Is that meaningful? Can I just show the net number for the period? The thing with revolvers, though, is they rarely qualify for net reporting. So sure, they have quick turnover and they incur in large volumes. But it's the last one, the maturity. Is it really, does it really have a short-term maturity? Because often the contractual maturity of each individual borrowing, even though you like borrow and repay all the time, is greater than 90 days. Like it's usually most most of them. Like when you borrow, you repay at the end. you're not required to repay until the end of the whole agreement, right? Um, So they don't qualify for net. So you'd show all the borrowings in one line as a financing inflow, and all of the repayments in another line as a financing outflow. It just comes up; it's a little confusing because it's not what a company's doing or intends to do, but it's really about the contractual requirement here, uh, not looking at history or anything like that. So,
2: yeah, yeah, I think um, you know, in my in my past life at the SEC, like yeah. it, that was something that came up a lot. Is, oh, really? Is I just want to <laughs> substitute intent. Like I have, yeah. I, I don't have the intent, and so. You know, even though, yeah, I get the contractual maturity isn't there. Can we, um, can we substitute? uh, And and no, you can't. The contractual maturity is, is the, is the key provision in those words. And, and we do see, like when you talk about revolvers, like from Mm -hmm. a comment perspective, right. Just thinking Mm -hmm. about. SEC comment letters. This yeah. is not our comment letter series, but yeah, I'm
1: no, deviate a little them. bit. Uh,
2: <laughs> is it, you know the staff is going to see those revolvers. They're going to see the other disclosures about those revolvers, mm-hmm. uh, and and they might ask questions about that in terms of what what's the activity you're doing there? Because mm-hmm. they'll go to the statement of cash flows and and they'll see, hey, I'm not seeing any activity on the revolver, mm-hmm. uh, and so so you know maybe they'll they'll pick up on that disconnect, um, and then again drawing that link back to liquidity capital resources discussion Mm -hmm. and mdna as well so there is an interconnection you know from you know and that's just one example like we we can probably walk through others as well
1: yeah
2: yeah uh maybe the next the next topic if we can move to uh the non-cash disclosures which which teed up a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. so you know we've talked about non-cash disclosures the statement talked about how important those are uh, to give that greater insight into the the investing and the financing activities of the company. So Mm -hmm. can you maybe walk us through a refresher uh, on the key points there? Yeah,
1: because this one, sometimes you forget about the non-cash piece, right? So generally, right, the face of the cash flow statement's only going to include actual cash flows, so things that actually hit the bank account for investing and financing. But we still have to keep track of the non-cash transactions as well, like you said, because there's a requirement to disclose them and you can do it on the face of the cash flow or in the notes. Um, some examples, converting debt to equity, issuing stock in connection with a stock comp plan, buying PP&E and not paying in that period, acquiring a business through the issuance stock, spinoff, anything that you know is not in cash. Um, so I would say just kind of like a tip is when there's a transaction, don't just focus on the cash. Be, be sure to look for those non-cash things as well. Because I just, when talking to people, it's just it's just not on top of their mind, right? It's just looking at the cash. So just be mindful of that. Um, and again, and I think we talked about this before with the whole control thing. Is just again, it's just when you have these transactions like these non-recurring things and all that, really good to get cash flow person involved, um, real time, so they kind of see everything that's going on, so they can look for that, those things.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of those things that you just walk through are going to be complex accounting issues as well. There's yeah. probably a memo being prepared of mm-hmm. how we're going to recognize it, how we're going to, met, you know, and so so yeah. having a section in that memo to what's the cash flow implications of this and even recognizing that there may be just a short term, you know, crossing over period ends.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point because I see a lot of accounting memos too, not cash flow, but other things and always a good practice. Yeah, to put in that cash flow discussion yeah. as well.
2: So, uh, you know, I, I think you talked about the actual cash flows, uh, mm-hmm. but I do think there's, there's uh, there can be an exception when you have uh, basically a, a constructive receipt or a constructive disbursement. So yes. can you talk through that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this comes up quite a bit. There are situations. So I did just say normally the cash flow statement only shows things that hit the bank account. But there's, there's this situation where it's a little different. And that's when you're using an agent. Right. So you invoke this, we call it constructive receipt and disbursements concept. So this is where the company is left out of the cash flow because another party made a payment on their behalf. So it's three parties, right? You have the company, the agent, and then the the other side, which is someone they're either paying money to or getting money from. The thing is when you have a third party and intermediary in the middle working as your agent, you should include any cash flows received or paid on your behalf as though it went through your own bank account. Put it on the cash flow statement. So you can see the reason is like you could easily get out of putting many things on your cash flow statement if you just get an agent to do it. Sorry, the agent is just working for you. So it's like as if you're doing it, right? Right. So just to give a quick example of an inventory purchase, right, the company buys inventory, takes out bank debt for the payment to the supplier, and the bank pays the supplier, let's say directly, as your agent, the company's agent. So again, there's three parties in this arrangement. Bank is main, making payment on behalf of the company. So in this case, we would apply constructive receipt and disbursement. So we'd show an operating outflow for the inventory purchase and a financing inflow for the financing received on the day that you know the bank paid that supplier. And then when the debt is paid off, we'd have a financing outflow for that.
2: Yeah, no, no, that's a great... A great example and I think to your point you know as companies are managing their liquidity something that that happens frequently, yeah yeah maybe shifting uh, or a little bit of a maybe a little bit of a rapid fire here uh, of some other topics um, that I know you deal a lot with uh, the first one is is property plant and equipment purchases so mm-hmm. you know um, purchasing PP e um, and maybe you're purchasing it you're getting the and e but but uh, maybe the payment for that doesn't come till later. So maybe yeah. it's maybe it's something similar to the inventory, but but yeah. even even just your normal thing where where it's you're paying it 30 days later.
1: So cash flow classification when you purchase PP, it depends on how soon after the purchase that the payment is made. So the guidance says if you make a payment soon after, so within three months of basically within three months, it's kind of a rule of thumb, um, it's investing when paid. If it's made longer than three months, it's financing when paid. You know, it's like, if it's more than three months, it's kind of like the seller gave you debt, basically, to to buy that, to buy that PP&E. So basically, in those cases, you'd have a non-cash transaction when you actually get the PP&E. And then when you actually pay it, it's going to be a a financing transaction because it's like you're paying off debt. What gets a little tricky is when you purchase PP&E, you don't pay for it right away, and the invoice goes into, let's say, AP, right? Because you're going to pay it within three months, but it just, it's like a regular invoice. It goes into AP. So let's say, just kind of try to do an example. Like, let's say, you know, we're talking year end. So I purchased PP&E on like the middle of December, right? Say so it costs $1,000, but the payment isn't due for 30 days. So it's due after the balance sheet date. So I'll put the PP&E on the books. So $1,000 PP&E and $1,000 go goes into AP. So how how do we do that on the cash flow statement? Well, actually in December, there should be no impact to the cash flow statement. No cash changed hands. Um, we'd have a non-cash disclosure for the $1,000 purchase. I just want to point something out because sometimes it happens. It would not be appropriate to have an investing outflow in December for the $1,000 and have it be offset in operating by including the thousand dollars in the change in AP when you're doing the reconciliation to net income, because I've seen that, right? And if you did that, then you're actually overstating operating cash flows by a thousand dollars because if you're like think about the reconciliation, right? That thousand dollars, it's not in net income because it's capitalized in. It. So if you back it out as an increase in AP, you actually end up with a thousand dollar operating inflow you're overstating right which is offset by the investing so that should not be done it should just be a non-cash disclosure for the purchase and then when you actually pay it um say in january it'd be an investing outflow
2: yeah no and i i think that i mean, not to just keep going back to the yeah. same point that we've made but but to me what that illustrates mm-hmm. is again the importance of thinking about that cash flow real time Yes. Uh, because it feels like that, like that AP example that you gave, you know, would be if you if you push the statement of cash flows to the end, and and it could mm-hmm. be very easy to just look at what's what's my change in AP yep. and just and just running that through, and mm-hmm. and you would know that there were those, um, those things on there maybe from from the beginning of the period, and and then also yeah. from the end of the period. Mm-hmm. So so exactly. um, just to keep uh, another reminder, another uh, plug for for thinking <laughs> about it real time, yeah, uh, with transactions. Um, you talked about uh, revolvers a little bit earlier uh, mm-hmm. from the debt perspective and mentioned yeah. that there's a lot of debt transactions. So maybe thinking about that and, mm-hmm. and maybe thinking about debt repayments uh, and, and the impact of those on the statement of cash flows.
1: Yeah. So I just want to start with like just a traditional old debt extinguishment. So not a restructuring or anything where you're getting new debt, but like just say you had cash and you paid off old debt. Right? So the repayment of the debt balance, it's going to be all financing unless it was debt that was issued with a significant discount. If it was issued with a significant discount or a zero coupon bond, then the portion of related to the repayment of that discount, the accreted interest would actually be operating. But besides that, it you know it's all financing. Um, all the costs are financing as well. So if you had to pay prepayment penalties, third party costs, anything, it's all going through financing in the in that case.
2: Okay, I know I know we're also seeing a lot of debt restructurings lately. Uh, so what are some of the cash flow considerations there?
1: Yeah, so we're going to start with the fees. That's usually the biggest um, thing. So I was just talking about fees when you just had a regular old debt extinguishment, not a restructuring. But when you have a restructuring, and what I mean by restructuring, I'm going to talk about it here. I mean, you had the same lender and the old debt and they came over to the new debt and you just restructured, you know, you did something to the terms or something like that. It was changed, but it's the same party on either side That's a debt restructuring, right? So for those, just for accounting, you have to do kind of look at them, see if it's a trouble debt restructuring. If it's not, you would do kind of this 10% test, look at the change in cash flows to figure out if it's an extinguishment or a modification. So you do that. So, Sure, we have a whole other podcasts and things on that, <laughs> and guys. But so, say you did that, um, then you get the answer. So if you have an extinguishment, okay, so it's the same lender, but it's treated as an extinguishment. Then it's the same as what I was talking about before. So all everything's financing, all the fees and all that. If you have a modification, so the change in cash flows is less than ten percent, the lender fees, the model is the lender fees are capitalized as a debt discount. So we would treat those as financing the cash flow statement the model for the modification for the accounting, the third-party fees are expensed. So we feel that those are, we think those should go to operating because they're expensed. They're not really considered a debt issue cost. So there's no new issuance of debt. So I feel like it just has to go into operating.
2: So when you just talked about that, you talked about the same lender Mm -hmm. um, on both sides, but I think sometimes what we'll see a lot of times is syndicated debt. (laughs) um, and, And whenever there's a new, you know, an update of that. There may be lenders that fall off, new lenders that come on. Mm -hmm. Um, What are there any, maybe you can talk through any of the unique uh, circumstances there and considerations. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no, that's mostly what we see, to be honest. Like most of the debt we see is syndicated debt. It could be a few lenders could be a lot of lenders, but yes. And they're all treated like their own separate units of account in a syndicate, right? So when you're doing the 10% test, I mentioned, you're all doing them all lender by lender. Well, the cash flow statement's the same thing. You really look at them kind of lender by lender. So what happens is questions come up because lots of times we see companies, they'll issue new syndicated debt and they'll take that proceeds and pay off the old syndicate. You know, just to get different terms or maybe the old syndicate is coming due or something and get a lot of questions on how to show that change in the overall balance of the debt, like how to show it on the cash flow statement. Like as an example, Say a company has an existing loan syndicate, say it's um, 75 million and they go out and they take out a completely new syndicate, let's say for a hundred million. So they use the proceeds from the new debt or take 75 million of it to completely pay off the old debt. So net there, there was an increase of 25, right? So it was 75 million before and it went to a hundred. So at the end of the day in their bank account, they have 25 million more, right? So the question is do I just show the 25 million as a financing inflow, or do I really have to break down and see what actually happened there, right? Now, just to get a little further into a typical transaction, usually the company will use an investment banker as an agent, getting back to that constructive receipt and disbursements concept I was talking about. But usually they'll have an agent to facilitate the transaction. And lots of times what I'll see is the investment banker, the agent is going to collect all of the cash, like in my example, hundred million dollars for the new syndicate from all of the lenders. Then they're going to turn around right around and directly pay off the old syndicate of 75 on the company's behalf. And then the investment banker will just go ahead and give the 25 million, my net additional proceeds to the company. So at the end of the day, like I said, you end up with 25 million more of cash. Um, it's, you know, that's mostly what happens, right? So what we think, you know, when you have that situation, when you have that agent, we're going to invoke the constructor receipt and disbursement concept that I spoke about earlier. So it's like as if the company collected 100 million from the new syndicate and repaid the 75 to the old. We would not just blindly show a net 25 million coming as a financing inflow. That's not what really happened. But that wouldn't be so bad if we could just stop there. (laughs) <laughs> but it's yes, more complex, of course, as always, right? Because a lot of times these in the syndicate, you've got these, I'll call them rollover lenders. So there's lenders that were in the old and they're in the new. It's a whole mix, right? You'll have lenders that are totally new in the new. You'll have lenders that were in the old that just left and didn't go to the new. And then I'll have these rollover ones that stay in. But usually they're usually actually passing cash though with that agent, you know? So the question on these rollover lenders is do I have to show the financing inflows and outflows in situations where those lenders don't actually, some of them don't change their principal balances. They keep them the same. Or sometimes they'll change their principal balance, but just by a portion. And it's like, what, you know, what do you do with those? Um if I give an example, like say I had a lender who was in the old debt. Just use very small numbers, like for two hundred dollars, and they're in the new debt for one hundred and fifty. So we know the lender at least got fifty dollars back because their balance went down from two hundred to one hundred and fifty. But usually, like I said, with these agents, the cash, the gross cash, is actually exchanged. Like usually, this lender will put in a new; they'll put in a new one fifty, and they'll receive payment back for two hundred. So in this case, we think on the cash flow statement, a reasonable approach is even for those lenders where they're, you know, this one's balance is just changing technically by 50, that we we would show like kind of the gross, what happened, right? 150 million financing in and 200 million financing out because that's what really happened, right? If that lender's restructuring was accounted for as a modification, however, we would accept just showing the net increase or decrease as well. But I think it's simpler, most companies sign. Just show it gross because if you show it gross, then you don't really have to break it down. You because they can mix them with all the new lenders and the lenders that got out. So it's just simpler to show it overall. But there is that option out there.
2: All right. So maybe moving on to our next area, uh, which would be uh, lease leases uh, and lease yeah. modifications. I think another thing that's coming up uh, with companies over the over recent years. So uh, those could be reductions in lease term, mm-hmm. reducing square footage, et cetera. Yep. Uh, just maybe could you talk through what are some of the cash flow considerations that companies might want to think about uh, if they're changing lease agreements?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good to bring up. We've been seeing lease modifications for uh, probably since the pandemic, just with companies kind of downsizing and all that. But it's still kind of going on, just different modifications, different uses of space, things like that. Um So a lot of times with lease modifications, you're going to pay a termination fee. So I'm I'm talking about this, let me clarify, from the lessee perspective, right? So sometimes you're a lessee, you want to get out of a space, maybe you were in a lease for many, you're kind of locked into a lease, let's say for five years, you don't want it anymore. Well, usually the lessor won't just let you out for free. You have to pay a termination penalty. And, you know, lots of times you'll negotiate that, pay the penalty, but then perhaps stay in the space for a little bit more because you you know gotta move out or, you know, these things take time. So not to get too much into the accounting, but we have we also have a podcast about that. But um, sometimes those termination fees, um, they're not expensed right away. Sometimes it's it's treated like a modification and it ends up being capitalized into the right of use asset. So, question. So, it's capitalized and it's the right of use asset, right? So, it's an asset on the balance sheet. So, questions come up on the cash flow. Where does that go? You know, because someone thinks, well, oh, I'm putting it in the asset. Should it somehow be some sort of investing thing or something like that? But really, the guidance just says there's no cash flow guidance. But the leasing guidance, any any payment, right? Any payment is just treated like a regular lease payment. You know, so if you make a termination payment, the accounting model treats it just like any other lease payment. So that means if you have an operating lease, you make a termination payment, it goes to operating. Financing lease, you make a termination payment, it goes to financing. There's really nothing, just a point, nothing special about the termination payments. It's just going to go to the same spot as any lease payment. Now, one thing though, a lot of times with those modifications, you're going to get a non-cash kind of adjustment to the lease liability right of use asset because maybe you decrease... Um, the number of years you're going to be in the space or you maybe you decrease your space, you know, the square footage, um, those do have to be disclosed as non-cash adjustments. And that's not its not really from the cash flow guidance. It's really something that the lease guidance, 842, specified that you have to do. So just a reminder there.
2: All right. No, that's helpful. Uh, maybe moving to another, our next rapid fire item um, is uh, maybe investments in, in treasury notes, uh, yeah. or T-bills. Um, I know sometimes, oftentimes, those won't qualify as as uh, cash equivalents. Uh, mm-hmm. And so uh, maybe some additional nuances there uh, since our debt securities and and obviously something we've seen different increased activity in, in, in recent years. Uh, so could you talk through the cash flow presentation for those?
1: Yeah. So we're getting some questions in this because I think, again, it's with the rising rates. They're just good investments. So companies are buying into them. And sometimes, or what I'm seeing recently or back a couple of quarters ago, a lot of times they're purchased at a discount to par. So, And that's raising some questions. And I'll kind of give an example just to illustrate. So like say a company purchases, just use a small number, $100 par T-bill, but they purchase it for 95. And let's say it's a zero coupon. So they're not getting interest. It's just you purchase it for 95, you get 100 back. At maturity right when the investment is purchased for 95 just assume you're holding it to maturity the cash outflow is investing and that's pretty straightforward we don't get a lot of questions there the question is on the when you get it back so the investor is going to receive the full par amount of hundred dollars when the bond matures so the question is should the entire when i get a hundred dollars back par should the entire hundred dollars be an investing inflow or should the portion of the hundred dollars that represents repayment of like the original discount, remember it's $5 in my example, should that be presented and operating? Because it's essentially interest income, right? Because you put the investment on your books at 95 and you're going to creed up to 100 through interest income um, to maturity. So there is no cash flow guidance for this. There is guidance um, on the issuer side. When you issue debt a zero coupon bond, there is guidance, but there's not the same for an investor. In this case with the zero, we there's multiple... Ways people think about this. Um, we think a one reasonable approach would be to kind of split that. So you get $100, put the original 95 back through investing, because that's what you originally purchased it for. And then the additional 5 would be an operating inflow for the interest component. Um, so basically, it's following kind of, you've got a cash flow for, that impacts multiple classes, right? And there's guidance on that in 230. So we think that's um, one reasonable approach to follow.
2: Okay. Our next topic is business combinations, okay. uh, which is another <laughs> another frequent area, uh, and and I know uh, a number of different transactions out there recently as well. So, um, but but just in general, there's a lot of different elements, complexities uh, to to business combination transactions. Uh, but starting, I'll start with the easy one first: okay. uh, <laughs> cash paid uh, for the acquisition mm-hmm. uh, up front. Uh, How how would
1: that be? So, okay. Yeah, thanks for giving me uh, a softball. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so cash paid to the seller, um, even though there's lots of changes, right, in the individual assets and liabilities that are going to come on the balance sheet as a result of BizCom accounting, that acquired business, it's the unit of account at the acquisition date. So those individual balance sheet line items, you know, that's not going to show up on the cash flow statement. So you just have one line item, Um, in investing to purchase in it, of course, net of any cash acquired. If you've got transaction costs, those are going to be operating. So those would not be net in the investing line. And then, of course, back to what I was talking about earlier, sometimes there's non-cash consideration in there that you'd have to disclose. Maybe there's some stock or contingent consideration, things like that, that you would disclose.
2: Yeah, so maybe uh, contingent consideration, I think, uh, uh, comes up frequently. How would you think about that when it's paid?
1: Yeah. So just to back, kind of back up, like on the acquisition date, right, the liability is set up, the fair value of the contingent consideration. So whatever, you know, the company thinks they're going to have to pay. And then it gets remeasured each period until, you know, until the contingencies are all resolved. So when the payment is ultimately made to the seller, the classification of the payment depends on two things, the timing and how the amount compares to the original liability. And this is going to sound a little familiar, um, because it's sort of what I was talking about earlier with the PP;E in a way. But if you make the payment within three months of the acquisition date so that's soon after the entire payment is going to investing, if you make it after three months, then any amount up to that original liability goes to financing so that original liability that was put on on the acquisition date, any payment over the original liability, that was recorded on an acquisition date would be operating, actually.
2: Okay, so so another situation that comes up frequently is is the acquirer will, will just pay off the seller's debt in connection with the business combination. So rather than paying cash directly to the seller, they'll just pay off the debt. Um, so maybe you can talk through that one.
1: Yeah, so the classification when the buyer makes that payment depends on if the acquirer legally assumes the debt or not. So if they did, so if you're the buyer and you legally assume the debt, then generally that debt that you assumed is going to get recorded at fair value on the acquirer's balance sheet. Basically like a liability assumed in the acquisition. So it's like the purchaser bought a business encumbered by that debt. Any payment related to that debt is now just like the buyer's debt. It's a financing cash outflow since the debt is now basically the legal obligation of the acquirer, right? So that's if you assume it. Now, I think a lot of, I don't know, but I I don't know how often they legally assume the debt or not. I think not. But if the buyer does not legally assume the debt, then the seller's debt is extinguished on the acquisition date, and any funds provided by the acquirer to extinguish that debt is are basically an investing outflow. It's like it's like basically you paid the seller's liability for them, but it was basically just like a cost of buying the business, right? So it's investing.
2: Okay. And then and then maybe the flip to a business combination uh, yeah. would be if you have a, a discontinued operation, which I know is another question that comes up because there's some unique presentation aspects there. could you yeah. could you talk through uh, disk ops
1: presentation? Yeah, so this is you've got disk ops and how do you present it on the cash flow statement? So there's a couple of accounting policy choices. One option one I'll say is breakout on the face of the statement of cash flows. So on the face of the statement of cash flows, you can present total operating and investing cash flows from DiscOps. And it's not required, but you could, you're not precluded from also presenting financing from DiscOps if you want. So that's one option. The second option is to just do it in a footnote. So in a footnote, you would show total operating and investing cash flows from DiscOps, or you can disclose depreciation, amortization, Capital expenditures and significant non-cash operating and investing activities related to discops, and that between those two options, that's a policy choice. That again, think about it. If it's the first time you have it, what do you want to do? Because the policies should be applied consistently, and all periods should follow the same presentation. So really think about that. Because sometimes I see companies might have like a small discops and just put in the footnote, but then maybe a little bit later. Period, another period, they've got like a big disc ops and they want to put it on the face. But, you know, really, you know, so it, it has to be consistent, right? So make sure when you're thinking about this, not just thinking about the transaction that happened is happening now, but kind of in the future and what you might want to do as well.
2: Okay. And then because you talked about breaking it out, one of the options being breaking it out on the financial statement, yeah. on the statement itself. But then the other option, doing it in the footnote,
1: mm-hmm.
2: would you, in that situation, what would you present on the actual statement of cash flows? Just total just, cash flows yeah. or just cash flows from operating activities? It
1: would just be regular cash flows. It would flows. be the
2: total, yeah. yeah. So I think the distinction there of, of in the first option, you'd kind of have the two different pieces of on it the face. on the yeah. face. Yeah. And then the other one, the, the you'd have just the total consolidated, and so yeah. which is a little bit different from the way that you think about the balance sheet mm-hmm. classification of, of disc ops. Mm-hmm. And so um, exactly. a little bit of a nuance there uh, for, for cash flows. Uh, so I think that covers us um, okay. in terms of other materials uh, you know there's a lot here um, mm-hmm. and so uh, certainly certainly, um, people may want to re- refer back to this but also chapter six of our uh, financial statement presentation guide has yep. a lot of the mm-hmm. cash flow guidance yep. uh, so that's certainly a, a good item to, to keep an eye on yep. so with that we'll close it out thank you a lot Suzanne I uh, really appreciate it sure. thank you very much
0: that's our show for today Tune in next week for more fresh episodes. So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in.